If I were to give the standard talk on Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, uh, 1517 and all of that, and particularly on this topic, sola scriptura, we would talk about things such as the recovery of the text of the Bible, Martin Luther translating the Bible into German so that the people could read it again after years, after centuries of it being obscured in the Latin text and reserved only for the use of priests, and a whole host of issues like that. And we might end up with applications, such as giving thanks for the fact that we all have Bibles today that we can read in our own language, and giving thanks for Martin Luther's efforts in recovering recovering that for us, giving thanks for having a doctrine that we are no longer at the mercy of an institutional church and a priesthood class telling us what God said, but instead we can read it for our very selves independently. And of course we will all, we talk about, we will talk about all of those things. Uh, but I want you to have a much larger view of the Reformation than the standard, generally kind of mainstream, church-centered view that is often given, even in circles where we honor the Reformation and still hold to its principles in a conservative way, the inspiration of Scripture, uh, the priesthood of all believers, etc., etc. A much larger view than that. And so I would like to make a statement here that might sound a little strange to you, but if you stick with me throughout these three talks, and you will have to stick throughout all three talks, by the way, to get them, because it's all one big long talk, actually, uh, it will make more sense. And the statement goes something like this. The Protestant Reformation is all about local government. Now, you've probably never heard a sermon on that before. You've probably never heard it put that way. You may even think that sounds a little strange and probably parochial. And Joel, I do remember that you wrote a book on local government, and maybe this is going to tie into that somehow. Uh, maybe this is all going to lead to book sales for American Vision. But no, uh, this is a true statement. And it's one which I hope broadens your view of what the Protestant Reformation really did and all that went into it. Uh, as I began to put these talks together and study these topics and ask what are the larger worldview implications uh, that w w went on uh, for then and for today, I began to realize that the Protestant Reformation had really already happened when Martin Luther appeared on the scene. It wasn't the case, of course, that anybody had already successfully uh, broken free from the power of the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s. That had not happened yet. It took a Martin Luther to come along. But other things had to be in place already, and it affected all of society, all of culture, all of business, all of economics, and it had to happen in order for Martin Luther's Reformation efforts to be a success. And no one ever talks about this. We do talk about it in a certain way when we get to Calvin often. Calvin revolutionized the entire city of Geneva, and there was this great, uh, great social-wide change there. And there was a great attention to all aspects of life, and, and we, we talk about that. Especially when we get to the Puritans, it's, it's obvious. But it had already begun to take place organically, I believe, 
through the work of the Holy Spirit, but you can certainly say more generally, in the providence of God, when Martin Luther had appeared on the scene. It had happened in a way that no human could have orchestrated this. There's no one person you can point to and say that's what it was. There's no one person that can take credit. And of course this falls under the heading of Soli Deo Gloria. As Trevlin said earlier, God will get the glory in all aspects of life, and he should. And this is a good illustration of that. It required interesting and profound, simple but profound changes in government, civil government, church government, business governments, and others for it to take place. It required a conviction of individualism. I don't know if that's a bad word here in Australia or not. It's beginning to become a bad word in the United States. It's certainly a bad word in view of most of the West, which is a collectivist mentality, socialist, quasi-communist, and other views. To stand up and be an individual and go against the crowd, that's a bad thing, but it was required. Anytime Reformation is required, that's going to be required. And it had to take an individual. And it had to have to do with a doctrine that has actually almost been totally forgotten today as a Reformation doctrine. And that is a doctrine called the right and duty of private judgment. You may have never even heard of this doctrine. Former previous Reformed theologians referred to the doctrine of the right and duty of private judgment as the most important doctrine that came out of the Reformation. Charles Hodge called it that. And others have viewed it that way too. And we'll talk about that. These things would fall under the heading that we'll talk about here in just a few minutes of sola scriptura. We also learn from this larger view of the Reformation that I'd like to cover in these three talks about the, do uh, the doctrine that we often in our circles use, dominion. But we get a much different view than the standard modern view of what that word means. You mentioned dominion today, certainly dominion theology, and people get this very visceral negative reaction. Are you talking about grabbing the reins of power? You want to control the government? You want an ecclesiocracy where the church controls everything? And it's not about control. Ashley and I were just talking about that this morning. That is the way of Cain. That is the way of Satan. That is the way of the Gentiles, the unbelievers. Christ specifically tells his disciples that is not what we do. Those who exercise power in the unbelieving world lord it over people and then call themselves benefactors. If that doesn't describe most governments in the West, I don't know what does. And Christ says, but it shall not be so among you. He who will be great among you must be a servant. And what we see in this broader view of the Reformation is the reality of that. 
that dominion comes to those who serve. And finally, I can sneak in a little bit of eschatology in that Reformation requires a legitimate hope. You have to have an expectation of Reformation in order for Reformation to take place. And we'll hopefully address all of these topics uh, as we go through. God's sovereignty, sola scriptura, and dominion through service. As I was formulating this talk, so I, I thought, that's interesting of uh, traveling, pretty, pretty clever to put together these five talks along the lines of the classical five soul. He's a clever guy, you know, so it's it a clever thing to do. Uh, along the lines of the classic five solas of the Reformation. And I began to study them. And as I was reading in the bulletin, it was great. They, they mean things to us now that are actually a little bit broader and, and more general than what they meant in the Reformation context. If you study all five of the solas in the Reformation context, they're really one big sola. Sola Scriptura was that the Bible alone is our authority. We don't need the Pope. Sola fide meant that uh, we're justified by faith alone, not by the works that the church is telling us to do. <clears throat> in other words, we don't have to buy indulgences from the Pope. Uh, sola gratia is the same, essentially the same doctrine. You're saved by grace, not through this system of merits. And you don't have to buy the merits from the church, from the Pope, in order to get saved or get through purgatory more quickly. Soli Deo Gloria had, had really not developed anything of the idea of the entirety of every sphere of life. It was really limited to the concept that the church had created this realm of the saints. And that you could pray to this saint or to that saint or to the Virgin Mary or to any of innumerable other sources in order to get... Uh, merits or particular graces or things of that nature to draw on the treasury of the, the church's treasury of merit. And Luther and others looked at this and said, no, if you pray to this person and they help you, then they get the glory. Well, St. Peter, I'm sorry you're a great guy, but you don't get the glory. Uh, St. Anne, yes, I know, and we'll get to this in a moment, I know I said a prayer to you at one time, but you, I'm sorry, don't get the glory. God alone gets the glory. There are not this host of mediators out there. There is one mediator between man and God, and that's Jesus Christ. And thus the last solo was solus Christus, or solo Christo, but it depends on who writes it. And that was, there is no mediator. We don't need the church and the priesthood and all the saints to be mediators for us. We have one. And if you put all those together in the context of the Reformation, and it was about authority. It was about the authority of the Catholic Church. And again, we'll come to that a little bit more in a moment. So as you keep all this kind of conglomeration of things in mind, the solas, their context, the, the, the themes I'd like to cover, and particularly this topic now, sola scriptura, uh, I want to give a little background to the Reformation that you may have learned in other classes or books, but you may not have put in context with the Reformation 
There's a historian of the Middle Ages named R.W. Southern. He's a very well-known author. And in one of his books on the rise of the uh, papacy in Western society in the, in the 1100s and so on, he begins the book with this comment about how church history has been written over the ages. And I wish I had, the whole, had written out the whole paragraph for you, but I'll summarize it this way. Up until now, church history has basically been written in an isolated manner about what the doctrines of the church have been, who was pope, who wrote what book, what doctrine they taught, how this doctrine clashed with another doctrine. There's a theological battle, and today we have come to believe this set of doctrines or that set of doctrines, and that's where we're at today. That's church history. But you've, that view of church history, which is a product of the church's dualistic view of the world, that it's isolated, it's not part of the organic life and all the other spheres of life around us, that view divorces what the church is from the entire rest of the world and the entire rest of history. It acts like it had nothing to do with the fact that there were bankers involved and there were wars involved. And there was industry involved, and there were financial interests at stake, and there were political interests at stake. And these things were all in a huge battle. Not in the least bit different than what we deal with today. When you have a national referendum, or I think you guys call it a plebiscite, on such an issue as homosexual marriage, or it could be taxes, or it could be subsidies, or it could be huge corporations versus the little guy. All of these issues were in play all of the time. And church history takes place in the midst of that and quite often is affected by it. And we'll come back to that. In, the, in our case, in the case of the Reformation, these things are extremely important to take into consideration, and you need to know some of what was going on. A couple of statements. The great church historian Philip Schaff says this about the Protestant Reformation. Next to the introduction of Christianity, the Protestant Reformation is, quote, the greatest event in history. Not the greatest Christian event, church event, religious event, event. The greatest event in history. Now we could probably have an interesting discussion with him about that. But it's interesting to me that reading a later historian, uh, a British historian by the name of Owen Chadwick, he says something along these lines. When the Protestant Reformation took place, Everybody who mattered in the Western world believed that Reformation was needed. And when we talk about the Protestant Reformation, what Luther did and how he stood up almost single-handedly alone, nailed those theses on the church door at Wittenberg, and started this Reformation and had the whole church arrayed against him, we don't get that image. We don't get the idea that the entire church world thought Reformation was needed. It was just, how do we do it? What needs to take place? 
As I said earlier, there were a lot of things in society that needed to take place, and there needed to be somebody to come along and say it. Okay? It's the things that needed to take place that were more important, in my opinion. And the reason I say that is because there had been people coming along all through church history saying, this needs to change. Most prominently, there was a man you've probably heard of by the name of John Hus. 150 years before Luther, in the exact same ecclesiastical setting of indulgences and penitences and papal authority, who stood up and said the exact same things Luther would say, except he was burned at the stake for it. What had to happen to prevent that from happening? Remember what I said at the beginning, local government. So it wasn't just Martin Luther. Everyone was crying out for this, but people were scared to death of the establishment that was in place. I know that's not my phone. People were scared to death of the establishment, and it was powerful, it was very powerful. But things had begun to take place. When Hus was standing up and speaking, it led to a lot of unrest in the church and there began to be a lot of meetings and talks and out of this came three important councils that took place over a period of several decades. But there was a council at Pisa, there was a council at Constance, and there was a council at Basel. And these three councils agreed, you know what, we think the Pope's gotten too strong. And those councils decreed that councils have more authority than popes do. And this was a doctrine known as conciliarism. Well, this lasted until the pope was able to increase his authority further and through some political machinations in about 1460, basically came out and say, yeah, I heard you say that, but it's not true. The pope has more authority, prove me wrong. But the Pope didn't know that there were a few other things going on, or at least couldn't control a few other things that were going on. One of those things was the Renaissance. Now you've probably heard of the Renaissance, and I won't spend much time on it other than to mention it, but it was an increase in interest in the classical humanist sources. People realized the papacy and the medieval church were utterly corrupt. It didn't take Martin Luther to come along and point out that they were selling indulgences in order to pay off the building of these cathedrals and to finance the Pope's empire uh, in, in order for people to understand this. The average Joe on the street knew this was a joke. There were a lot of people who were beaten down with guilt and manipulation by the establishment church, but there were a lot of people who also saw through it plain as day. And they ridiculed the church. And there was a lot of literature at the time that criticized the church. Even classic works such as Dante and others were critiques of the Roman Catholic Church. And in fact, Erasmus of Rotterdam was a Christian humanist who poked lots of fun at the Catholic Church and its foibles. So there's this resurgence in humanistic education. 
One of the guys who uh, got involved in this was a man named Frederick. He was the prince called the elector of a region in Germany called Saxony. And around 1502 or so, he founded and endowed the University of Wittenberg. Now this is an important thing. It was founded as a classical humanist, or at least a humanist education, seminary. Not what we use as the word humanist today. It's slightly different, I should clarify that. Not secular humanist, but a humanist in the sense that it was not subject to papal authority and it had different focuses than the classical education forced upon the society by the Roman church was, which was uh, scholastic. Aquinas and things of that nature. Wittenberg was the first university in Western civilization that was founded independently of the Pope's authority. Frederick was an enlightened man. Frederick was an also somewhat insulated man because of his political situation and his location. And he founds this university and he does so expressly outside the realm of the church. And the church didn't really get on to him too much for this. You would expect this fire-breathing institution of the Roman Catholic Church that wanted just uh, uh, unbelievable control of everything to be all over the guy. But there was a problem, and it was political, and I'll explain it in a minute. As a result, Frederick had a little bit of wiggle room in which he could get away with this. Another thing was going on at this time that had begun in the 14th century. It's something you don't often hear come up in the context of the Reformation, but it's vitally important. And it is called something called the bubonic plague. And you all know your history here. You all know the, the basic facts and figures of this. It ravaged not just all of Europe, but all of the world somewhere near half of the population of China was wiped out by the plague. Somewhere near a tenth of the population of Africa was wiped out. That was actually well below the average because it affected highly uh, densely populated areas. Africa was mostly rural. About a third of the population of Europe was decimated by the plague. And it was deadly. It came in multiple forms. One form, which is I, call, I think is called the septicemic form, if you're a medical uh, uh, aficionado here, you can correct me on that. That is where the bacteria literally gets into your bloodstream. And when it affects you in that form, it's deadly within hours. So you can imagine this plague running through Europe with no cure, no answers, no understanding, people dropping like flies, every third person, and the church is powerless to stop it. In the, con in the context of the Roman Catholic Church trying to buy and sell indulgences and build great cathedrals and make something out of itself, and God is striking the society with this plague in which nearly every third person is dying, man, woman, and child, you might think people begin to question what all's going on here. These things don't seem to go together. 
If the church is supposed to be so great and grand and wonderful, and the Pope is supposed to wield such great power by his word alone, why is this happening to us? And the church tried everything in the book to stop this. They even had committees of monks who would engage in these overt uh, public acts of self-flagellation by the scores, literally beating their bodies until they're blood bloody, trying to get God's mercy. All of this took a toll on public opinion and public understanding. Well, widely was perceived as God's judgment upon the society. It disrupted families. It caused situations where entire families were wiped out and funerals would be held by the church to an empty audience because there was nobody left there to mourn for the people that were dying. Just an amazing sentence and event that happened upon the society. On top of this, oh, and by the way, the plague didn't just happen and be gone in a few years. This occurred for well over a century intermittently. It was still going on. It was still feared when Martin Luther comes onto the scene. Add to this things like the Hundred Years' War that had happened, multiple peasant outbreaks in revolt throughout the 14th, 15th and even 16th centuries. Add to this the breakdown of feudalism and many other things such as that. And you have a Catholic church here is trying to tell you that we are in control of everything and through its canon law, literally dictating the minutiae of every person's life, your marriage, your birth, your baptism, your marriage, your finances, your tithes and offerings, your inheritance, your job, the economy, just prices and wage controls in society, what job you can work, what social status you may have, what status above which you may not rise, Every minute aspect the church claims to have control of and has a detailed system of its own laws by which it says it has divine authority to control you. While all of these things are going on. So certainly a lot of incongruous things going on to where even the average person is questioning uh, what's happening here. This is only the beginning of the social setting. I mentioned the, the university in Wittenberg. One of the most interesting things that comes out of all this, uh, in my opinion, is the development of new technologies. Again, nobody talks about this in the context of the Reformation. Nobody told you that the development of new technology in the mining industry would have a profound revolution and have a profound effect that would lead to the Protestant Reformation. But it did. Absolutely did. In the 15th century, there were developments in the mining industry that to us sound primitive, but at the time were revolutionary. 
One of them was the, the ability to ventilate mine shafts using a system of pumps and hoses. Another one was uh, also through pumps and hoses and horse, literally horse-drawn uh, treadmills, uh, a way to pump water out of mine shafts. These things revolutionized the ability to mine ore. In an age, in an age where there was no digital currency or paper currency, really, there was, there were some in the form of bonds, certificates, but mostly it was all coinage. You needed silver. You needed gold. You also needed other metals, iron, copper. And literally in the region of Saxony, again, under the directorship, the princehood of Frederick the Wise, one of the largest and most prosperous mining operations opened up. A family who had been industrious beginning in the weaving industry and the textile industry through that, grew rich, began in uh, banking and money lending industry, and in the process of money lending, acquired the rights to a set of mines that had been recently opened. When the companies running those mines went bankrupt, this banking company got control of them and decided to use it for its own interest because after all, we're bankers and you know we kind of like silver and gold, so uh, we're gonna exploit this thing. They turned into one of the most profitable mining operations in the West. And the family was known as the Fugger family. And if you've ever heard that name, you'll know, wow, that's a big deal. Because the Fuggers were one of the richest banking operations in the world. And in fact, in comparable terms, uh, Jacob Fugger, who was contemporary with the Luthers, was, is considered today to be one of the richest men who ever lived. Now, in the development of his mining industry, he, he developed a stream of copper mines. And this, of course, creates jobs, and people get interested, and entrepreneurs get involved. And there was a man who, who thought he would get into this mining business and see what he could make of it. And he was an entrepreneurial type guy. He had a small business. He did quite well for himself. He didn't get as rich as the Fuggers by any means, but he did uh, get, do pretty well. And his name was Hans Luther. And he made so much money for himself, which again, he wasn't a, a ultimate, uh, fabulously wealthy man, but he was a prosperous upper middle class businessman. And he decided that he would send his son off to get an education, a proper education, and become even more prosperous than him in the realm of law. And so Hans Luther sent his son, Martin, off to law school. And you know the rest of the story. This is where the story that's told in church history fits in. That uh, Luther is out riding his horse one evening. He gets caught in a storm. And the storm becomes so violent. And lightning is striking. Thunder is clapping. And a loud boom of thunder and a lightning strike literally caused Martin's horse to be spooked. He's thrown from his horse and he lands with such a thud. And he is so terrified that he, he prays a prayer in his Catholic self at that moment to St. Anne and says, if you will spare me from this storm, I will become a monk. I will join the priesthood. Just save me. 
And as God would have it, he used that means to pull Martin Luther into uh, the stream of history in which he did, for which we know him today. Luther's father was very disappointed with his decision, by the way. He wanted his son to become prominent and to become somebody. He didn't want him to go off and become a monk, which was seen as kind of a recourse for people who didn't have anything else to do. Why would you want to, after all, in the midst of this prosperous economy, to go sit in a room and pray every day when you could get a real job and make some money? So he was disappointed. The problem was that Luther had prayed to St. Anne. And St. Anne just happened to be the patron saint of minors. And so Father Luther was a little bit in a pickle. He kind of had to honor this request, and so he went along with it hesitantly, uh, begrudgingly, uh, but he went along with it. Nevertheless, this mining boom is still going on in Saxony, and money is flowing. It just so happens that the Fuggers are fairly devout Catholics. Uh, it's a Jewish family, don't get me wrong, but uh, politically, they're, they're devout to the Pope and to the Catholics. And when the Pope needs to raise money for St. Peter's to start rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica, uh, you've all heard this story probably before, it was that financial need for which he began to raise indulgences. Uh, what they usually left out of that story is the fact that Pope didn't, the Pope didn't wait for the money to start coming in. He went out and he borrowed it from the Fuggers. So there's this relationship taking place between the money and all of that. Obviously, the proliferation of money and banking and the money economy and all of that completely revolutionized the way society had been up to that point. It had been largely manorial, agriculturally based, but with the, with the rise of industry and technology, this completely changed things. People began to move into the cities. Uh, oddly enough, in kind of a, the reverse re reaction to the plagues that should have happened, people began to move into the cities. Uh, in some cases, it was out of necessity. They didn't have anything else left. They didn't have any family. Uh, but in other cases, it was just because they were, felt like they were fleeing from the plague. In reality, they were making it worse by jumbling up together. Uh, the meetings that the monks did, by the way, by flagellating themselves in public during the plague actually made things worse, too, because it brought everyone out into the same space where they could communicate the diseases to each other. So, uh, so much for that. There was one other little... Uh, development I'll mention here, and that was the development of a little thing we call gunpowder. Now, gunpowder had existed for a long time already in China and in the East, uh, but it was not really prominent in the West so much, but its arrival in the West and Europe allowed, again, mining to develop further because now they could blast. Uh, it also obviously was used in warfare. This was a tremendous revolution. Again, you've probably never heard, but it completely changed the way warfare was done and it, it changed the nature of cities. Up until this point, the walled city, the same kind of thing you read about in the Bible, the same kind of thing you read about in the first chapters of the Bible with Cain, uh, existed all the way up until the 1500s and, and in some few cases beyond. Uh, but certainly up until this time, 
It was the way to protect yourself. If you needed to keep the armies out, you built a high rock wall. Uh, suddenly somebody shows up with gunpowder and the big wall that you spent all these years making and all this effort and all this labor and money putting into this wall suddenly is not such a great thing anymore. So it completely revolutionizes defense and arms. And what that does is it pretty much destroys the knight class. The end of knight, uh, knights as a force in battle wanes after the introduction of gunpowder. It doesn't make much sense to walk around in this heavy suit of armor thinking you're somebody on the battlefield when somebody can go kerblam and blow you to pieces. So that kind of put an end to that. All of these things are happening. Society is in complete upheaval at this point. And the church, the Roman Catholic Church, has zero answers to it. The best they can do is a 15th century version of trying to be church relevant. Do you all have those here in Australia where the church tries to be relevant to society by making it look like more of society? So we have these books in the United States about Jesus as the CEO of your life. And do you have that stuff here? Do you know what a CEO is? Do you use that terminology? Okay, great. Uh, there are always social barriers we have to overcome. But, you know, or Jesus is the financial uh, planner of your life, or Jesus is this or that, or, you know, we got to have the right-looking type of rock and roll band on stage with the whole light show and everything in order to attract people. Um, this was a 15th century version of that. The money and banking and merchant economy had so affected Western life, that it was the rage. It was what everybody talked about. Everybody wanted to be part of it because it was upwardly mobile. And the church adopted the language of the merchant class in talking about merits and debits. And it began to apply that to your salvation life. And these are the very issues Martin Luther is struggling with when he becomes a monk because he had something that not a lot of monks had, and that was a highly developed conscience. It wasn't enough for, for him to say, I didn't murder anybody today. I didn't steal anything today. If he, if he uh, picked up a crumb that somebody else had left, he felt guilty that he might have stolen something. He had this insanely acute conscience about all of his actions because he knew he could not stand before God with the slightest sin on his record. And so as he began to take account, he began to fill up the books with every little sin that he ever did. And so he would spend hours in the confessional with his priest to the point where the priest was saying, Luther, get out of here. And these stories are not apocryphal. These things really happen. But it was uh, all about how social developments were essentially driving to a focal point. And that is nothing less than the sovereignty of God. But there was this guy, Luther happened to be, born into the family of Hans Luther, and he happened to be born in the region of Saxony, uh, Germany today, part of Germany today. And Saxony happened to be ruled by this enlightened figure named Frederick the Wise, who, eh, 
Nominally, he was Catholic. He never really became a Lutheran, even after all of the development that Luther did. Uh, and uh, he never really changed much, but he was always just kind of political and aloof from it. He would play the game and say, yes, okay, Mr. Pope, say what you want. But when push came to shove, he was master of his domain, and he was not going to let the Pope control it. And that was very interesting. As far back as the 1300s, the uh, German people, under the so-called uh, Holy Roman Empire conception, uh, nevertheless were exceedingly jealous over their local liberties. And there was always a struggle between, are we going to let the Pope really have power here? Or are we really going to let Rome and Florence tell us what to do here in Germany? Or are we going to stand up and take responsibility for our own selves and protect ourselves? And this was a very serious thing. And so over time, and I don't have all the details, but the basics are this. Uh, in uh, 1356, something called the Golden Bull, also known as the Magna Carta of Germany, uh, was issued, and it basically protected the local political rule of the Germans from too much outside interference. And it said that from this point on, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which of course you all know the statement from Voltaire, right? The Holy Roman Empire was not holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire. Well, it was certainly not, that was certainly true in Germany, and part of it was because of the, the, the issuing of this decree that from that date on, the Holy Roman Emperor would be chosen by seven local electors. And it just so happened that one of those was the Elector of Saxony, who happened to be Frederick the Wise, as we've seen. Nevertheless, there were, well, shouldn't say nevertheless, there was always a rival political uh, uh, contest for control of those seven seats, of course. And so the Pope was always working behind the scenes to try to get people who were loyal to him in those seats so that he could guarantee the election of the emperor he chose. And this was going on all the time. Uh, and there were rivals for these seats at the time that were also non-papal. And there was one, in fact, from a rival uh, family of the Hohenzollerns. Uh, most of the seats were controlled by the Habsburg family, and this other rival family had one of them. And this guy, uh, Joachim of Brandenburg, uh, had three empty archbishoprics in his, uh, in his region, and he wanted to uh, keep them loyal to him and so he wanted to appoint his younger brother, Albrecht, to these three seats. Now, this was very common at the time under the papal authority. The buying and selling of seats was just as common, if not more, than the buying and selling of indulgences. People wanted control of the bishop's spot because that was highly lucrative in this age in which the church ruled all of life and could essentially demand uh, large portions of your money in order for you to get to heaven. So these seats would often be bought and sold for very high prices. And this was certainly the case for Joachim. He was willing to pay a lot of money to get these three seats. The only problem was that canon law said you couldn't hold more than one seat or one office at a time. And you might think, well, you know, that's a pretty big deal. 
canon law. The church takes its canon law pretty seriously, so that's kind of not going to happen. But you would be wrong about that. Anytime there is an established bureaucracy or established government in place, you can be assured of the rule that that establishment will not follow its own rules when it's in its interest to do so. And uh, the Pope, of course, he's a very reasonable man. So if you come to the Pope and you say, look, I know this is against canon law, but my brother, he's a really good guy. He's an effective administrator. It'd be beneficial to both of us, I think, if he got all three of these offices. I know it's against the rules, but you know, the Pope, since you're the supreme authority, can grant special dispensations. And the Pope says, you are right. I can grant special dispensations. It just costs a little bit more. And so he has a little negotiation and they decide on the outrageous price of 29,000 Rhenish gold guldens. Now you may be better at ancient currencies than I am. The best I could figure up that that was about in the tens of millions of dollars. That tells you what a bishop's seat was worth, especially an archbishop. And of course, neither Joaquin nor his brother Albert actually have this in their billfold at the moment. And so they say, we'll get right back to you. And they settle a deal, long story short, 25% down and the rest they could borrow and pay back later. And who do you think they went to? The Fuggers, who financed everything in Europe at the time. So they go to the Fuggers, they take out a nice big loan, they pay off the Pope, they gets all three seats. This guy now has an enormous debt to pay off. He's in hock to the Fuggers. Uh, like pretty much everyone was that wanted to be somebody. Uh, he has this tremendous debt to pay off. So the Pope is trying to pay off his debts to build off the cathedral. He's trying to raise indulgences all over the place. And now one of your local guys, right down the road from you in Augsburg, also has the same problem. He's got to pay off some debts. And so the local archbishop, the new archbishop Albrecht, decides he's going to sell indulgences to pay off his debts. And so he starts pushing this and he begins to look around the Holy Roman Empire for the best guy, the best salesman he could find to go out and sell these indulgences from him. And he came across a man you have all heard about before named Johannes Tetzel. You know Tetzel's song, right? When the coin in the coffer spring or rings a soul from purgatory springs. And uh, if you've seen the Luther movie that was done a few years ago, it, it has one of the best depictions of Tetzel that anyone could probably produce. He comes marching into town with these uh, traveling actors and a whole production with big banners of souls burning in hell with fire flaming on these banners and they would wave the banners in such a way that it looked like the flames were burning these victims and he would come up and he would threaten the people that why don't you give your money when your own relatives are burning in hell and they, their pain and torment can be lessened if you just give and the people would line up in many cases and give and it was one thing for the Pope to be hiring Tetzel to sell indulgences throughout the empire but here was this University in Wittenberg that had opened up independently of the Pope. And now they've got this guy coming in virtually into their own backyard, selling indulgences to pay off the offices that everybody knows they've just bought from the Pope. 
And it just so happens that at that university in Wittenberg, the young monk, Martin Luther, had graduated and had been assigned as a professor of biblical languages. And as this young professor is, of course, he's having his own issues as he's reading through scripture at this time, uh, sees Tetzel and his production, and along with many of the people in society, see what an absolute joke of a production this is, and they don't think they can do anything about it. But Martin Luther at this point is a very naive ideological young man. And he goes back and he sits down and he writes, as you know, the 95 Theses. Those 95 Theses were written in reaction to the program of Johannes Tetzel. Uh, by the way, is there a clock where I can look at and gauge what time? I have five minutes. I haven't even talked about Sola Scriptura yet. Goodness gracious. All right, well, we'll get to it eventually. Don't worry. Um, so I'll give you the short story of this, and, uh, and I'll quit, and we'll, we'll pick it back up in the next talk a little bit later. Uh, Luther sits down and writes the 95 Theses. As you know, he tacks them on the door, and sometimes the story says this caused a firestorm. People read it and all that stuff, but they didn't actually. It was written in Latin. People couldn't read Latin. Uh, so somebody says, well, they, they took it down. Somebody translated it, and the print, printers distributed it, and that caused the outcry. Uh, that was probably partially true, but what really got Rome's attention was the fact that Luther was so bothered by Tetzel, he sat down and wrote a copy and sent it to Tetzel's bishop. He wanted the bishop to know, look what this guy is doing, this is so wrong. And he was so naive because he had no idea that the Fugger banking industry and the mining industry and the Pope and the bishop and everybody else and the whole political structure was all part of the same system. He really honestly thought the bishop would do something about this rogue. When in reality, the bishop was one that hired the guy. And so Albrecht gets Luther's letter and the theses, and he says, hmm, that's interesting. I don't necessarily want this guy causing trouble in my backyard, not with the debts I have to pay off. And so he just forwards it to Rome, and Rome looks at it and says, hmm, this is interesting. We've got one more crazy monk. I'll just pass this down through the channels of the bureaucracy. Then they hand it off to a guy named Prierius, who happened to be uh, a Dominican friar. Now, I should tell you that also at this time, there's a tremendous rivalry within the Catholic Church. Not only among those who were conciliarists versus those who were loyal to the Pope, but, among, but also between the orders of the monks. There were Franciscans, there were Cistercians, there were Dominicans, there were Augustinians. Luther had joined the Augustinian order, which was intensely biblical in its focus. And, of course, as the name would imply, highly focused on the writings of St. Augustine. And so you get strong doses of predestination and biblical literature and things of that nature that you get when you read Augustine. The Dominican order, however, had risen to prominence through the Inquisitions and saw itself as the defenders of papal authority across the board, and so they were firmly entrenched in the Vatican and in the Vatican's bureaucracy, and Prierius was of the Dominican order. They were in a, an intense rivalry with all other orders, who they saw as not measuring it up, measuring up. 
And so they sit down and they give this the toughest fine tooth comb of a critique you can imagine. The interesting thing is that when Prierius gets done with this critique of Luther's 95 theses, he's only got four points that he really cares about. Number one, do you believe the Pope is the head of the church? Number two, do you believe the Pope can err when he performs his duty as Pope? Do you deny papal infallibility? And do you deny that the Pope can establish law through his words and deeds? In other words, one question, Luther, are you going to submit to the Pope? Back home, Luther is a member of the Augustinian order. He's influenced heavily by the conciliarists who believe that councils outrank the Pope. He's a professor at a humanist university, which is focused on the study of the text of the Bible. He's already strongly reconsidered the doctrine of penance, which he no longer believes. Uh, well, he, well, that's not true. He will eventually arrive at the belief that it's not a sacrament of the church. It's something God requires us to do all the time. And he was already developing that. That's the first of the 95 theses, that repentance is not something you do because a priest tells you or because you pay somebody, it's something God requires of you constantly throughout the Christian life. He's already revolutionized his view just simply by reading the Bible. And of course, he's written the 95 Theses, and he's got a lot of the local population, the student body in Wittenberg, and some of the professors, including Melanchthon, who you mentioned earlier, on his side. What is he going to do? Well, the one thing he does know is that Frederick, the elector of Saxony, is not going to just bow and give up to the Pope. And that's why local government is the key. And I'm out of time for this first talk, but we'll come back to that and hopefully tie those together a little bit for you. That's the background of the Reformation. If you don't have that, the Reformation doesn't make sense. If we don't teach it that way, the Reformation doctrines are not complete. And if we don't carry this with us as we go, we won't be able to apply it to our own time correctly. And I hope to get more into how to do that in the next talk. Thank you.